morning, everyone. My name is Dan, and I'm the pastor here, and it is a joy to see every single one of you here today. Uh, it's a joy because, it, because it's exciting, because you're about to hear the Word of God. We've, we, we've had songs where we can uh, meet the Lord and say to Him how much He means to us, and, and we can remind ourselves, and now we will hear from the Word of the Lord. So we're working through our series in Mark. Mark is the recollections of the disciple Simon Peter. Remember that Mark wasn't there when these things happened, but Simon Peter sat down with them and said, this is what happened. And Mark, being a good scribe, wrote it down. Um, but, but these thoughts that we read are actually Simon Peter's, not Mark's. And I think that we're at about week 16 in our, in our journey through Mark, which maybe it's a bit less than that, but it's there or thereabouts. And uh, this week we're, um, uh, and through this series we're learning that Jesus reveals himself as the servant king. And I hope that as we're reading through it, that what we see uh, is that we see Jesus as God. You know, that he is who he says he is. Um, but I'm also hoping that, that Jesus' humanity and his earthiness really comes through that we see that he was as human as we are, okay? As human as we are. And our, our key verse in the book of Mark is Mark chapter 10, verse 45, that says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, last week, we uh, learnt that uh, sometimes, or, yeah, so... Maybe two weeks ago, we learned to engage in Jesus' power and to retreat in his, in his presence. Then the next week, we learned that, uh, that Jesus meets our needs, sometimes precisely, sometimes plentifully, but always what? Perfectly. Right. And this week, we are going to l learn what it means to trade tradition for truth. Everyone say that. Trade, tradition, for truth. One more time. Trade, tradition, for truth. That's what this week is about. Now, Mark was written to, the, uh, to members of the Christian faith. It was new. Um, so it was, it, was, it was written to members of the Christian faith that were living in Rome um, who were going through really hard times because the state did not like them or want them. It viewed them as a threat. Um, and, so, uh, and so Mark is written to Roman Christians who don't necessarily know all of the Jewish ways. So as we read through our passage today, um, you will see some, some, some little asides which Mark writes from Simon Peter's words trying to explain some of these Jewish things to the Romans, which helps us because we're not Jews either, so we can kind of act as those Romans and uh, have some things explained to us. Let's turn to Mark chapter 7, verse 1. Mark chapter 7, verse 1 which says this, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And here's this, this uh, little aside to explain to the Romans what this means. And it says, the Pharisees and all the Jews, they do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions such as the washing of cups and pitchers and also kettles. And in another 
parts of the Bible, or in some early manuscripts, it even says they're dining, they're, they're settees, they're, they're, you know, where they sit, their sofas. So, uh, so all of these things are washed. Um, and we'll pause, no, let's read verse 5 as well. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, because they saw uh, these followers of Jesus not washing their hands in the ritual way, so they asked uh, Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Now, we have to be clear about something right at the start, is that when the disciples uh, eat with ceremonially unclean hands, they aren't breaking a commandment or a rule from the Lord himself, okay? Um, they weren't even being unhygienic because this washing of the hands, it wasn't washing of the hands like us with soap and stuff. It was just, it was, it was a pouring of water over certain parts of the forearm and the hand so that it would be ritually clean, but not necessarily hygienically clean. So you hope that they are washing their hands like good followers of Jesus should do, right? Say yes, Dan. All right, good. So, but what they were breaking was a human man-made thing, a rule. But if someone was to go up to Pharisees and ask them, why was this the right thing to do? Why is it right that you ceremonially clean your hands? They would probably say something like this, because it's how we've always done it. My daddy taught me to do it, and his daddy taught him to do it. Washing our hands means we're righteous, we're good, we're in the club. So what had happened is that because their daddy told them and they will tell their sons and so on and so on, this, this cleaning of the hands becomes a line in the ground that you cannot see. It is invisible, but there is this line in the ground. You're either on this side of the line or you're on this side of the line and you don't necessarily know which side of the line you're on unless you know the rule. But, unless you, but if you don't know the rule, then you might find yourself on the wrong side of the line. Now in Wales, I was raised never watching any TV on Sunday, okay? I never really asked why. I just knew that Sunday was a no TV day. My friends did. Uh, we didn't. It was just how the Wallace family did it. However, one thing I was never taught to in Wales was to take my hat off when I pray. Okay, that was something I was never taught. And so I come over to Canada, and I find that there's all these men who are taking their hats off when they pray. And then you ask why, and well, because it's respect. It's the right thing to do. And, and there were times, you know, when, when I would pray with my hat on, not realizing uh, that I was not being respectful, and then I'd be, you know, gently reminded in a Christian way that uh, you should take your hat off when you pray because it's the it's the right thing to do. It's the it's the respectful thing to do. So my question is, what is it about a baseball cap or any hat on a man that is a sign of lack of respect to Almighty God? Okay, that's my question. Is it the material? Is it the color? Is it the brand? Is it the name on the front? Is it the fact that, like, is God up there in heaven having a minor fit because he cannot see the crown of my head because it's been obscured by material? I don't know. Now, folks talk about 1 Corinthians 11, and they say, well, that refers to a hat, you know, that, that, uh, that men shouldn't wear hats. Um, 
But then again, if you actually look at the context of 1 Corinthians 11, it's more likely talking about men with long hair than it is about hats when you look at the context and the background. So in, in that front, I'm sorted. I am good. Now, when I was a youth pastor 10 years ago, I was in trouble because I had hair down to my shoulders, but uh, now I'm okay. So, so watching TV on Sundays and taking hats off to pray, none of these is a biblical rule. None of these we would find in the pages of Scripture, but they are very powerful and meaningful social traditions. Now, when I was in Germany, I was maybe 10 or 11 years old, I remember going into a Lutheran church, and, um, and, they, and they stood to pray, and they sat to sing. And I'm thinking, who sits to sing? The German Lutherans do or at least in that church which, which I went to. But it was very clear. You stand to pray and you sit in order to sing. I'm thinking, how do you fill up your lungs? I'm not sure. But, uh, but you know, we, we have some great hymns out of the German church, so they obviously know how to sing, right? So we, we, we all have these markers, which, which, which we can't see with our eyes, but we all have these markers that help us make sense of life. Now, we, we know that they are there, even if we cannot see them, and, and the thing about these markers is that they are not wrong, okay? They are not wrong. But where we have to be super careful is where our invisible social norms become invisible lines that separate us from them, the righteous from the less righteous. But there are more reasons why these hum human traditions might be dangerous. Let's listen to Jesus in Mark 7, verse 6. He says, and of here, of course, he's responding to the question of the Pharisees, um, saying, why don't your people wash their hands like a good Jew should? And he says this. He says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and, um, uh, where is it? You, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And so Jesus goes straight for the jugular here. He calls them hypocrites. He says, you Pharisees, you are hypocrites, which means actors, which means stage players, which means you are playing some sort of a part. And then he peels back the harsh reality of this word hypocrite when he quotes from Isaiah 29 verse 15. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, which means these people are paying lip service to Almighty God himself. Um, it's empty words. Their talk is hollow. They are trying to smooth talk God. That's really what it means. They are insincere. They know how to put on a good show, but it's empty. Now, if we learn anything from the Pharisees, we learn this, that when people stop worshiping God, they have to fill that hole that's left there from that worship of God. Okay, worship of God is gone. They have to fill that hole left there with something else. And that's probably where pride starts to creep in. And this pride in turn gives rise to hypocrisy, which means playing a part, like I said, acting. And so I started looking down at those Sunday TV watchers 
because they weren't as good or as holy as me. What, what a thing to say in verse 7. This is Jesus Christ saying, they worship me, he's, well, they worship me in vain. They worship me in vain. What a scary thing to hear God say. You're worshiping me in vain. You may as well stop. It's worthless. It's absolutely pointless. And then in verse 9, Jesus says that they've turned hypocrisy into an art form. They excel at it, it says. In fact, in one translation, it says, you are experts at setting aside uh, the rules and the commandments of God in order to keep your tradition. So you lay aside what God has clearly said so that you can hold on to what are human uh, rules. And you know, and the thing about being an expert, there's very little that I'm an expert in. In fact, probably nothing. But from what I know of experts is that it takes hard work and sacrifice and real dedication to become an expert in something. Some, you know, that you can be the reference point. It takes hard work to excel at something. It's an all-consuming exercise. It's not something that happens overnight or by accident. So what Jesus is saying is that you Pharisees, you've worked incredibly hard at this. And the issue with maybe hypocrisy is that you start to really believe your own fake news. You, you start to be um, fooled by your own spin. Now, maybe you could say, well, you know, the Pharisees, they were, you know, they'd, they'd wandered off from the true path, but they were well-meaning, even if they were rather misguided. Yeah, they'd added on a few extra rules, but you could argue that maybe, but their hearts were in the right place, and that's what really matters, right, is that our hearts are in the right place. But then in verse 9, Jesus outs their hypocrisy and their fake news. He says, and he, he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, on your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, so this is what God says, but you say um, that, that if anyone declares what might have been used to help their father or mother is is." Uh, is, is known, known as Corban, which means it's been devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. And so what Christ is saying here is that what's written in the Bible, what's written in, in the Hebrew, Hebrew scriptures is clear that you are to honor your father and mother. That's not a negotiable. But then the Bible also talks about things being set aside for the use of the Lord. And so what the Pharisees had done is that their internal moral compass was so mangled and really twisted and just not pointing north at all. It was so messed up, this moral compass inside, that they'd figured out a way to play God's rules against himself. Okay? They said, well, if I say that these things over here are known as Corban, then, sorry, mum or dad, I'm not able to help you because... It's the Lord's, but there was nothing to say that they were actually using it for the Lord, but it was set aside. It was not really touchable. And they were doing this in the name of God, which means they'd found an amazing loophole, which is horrendous, right? But we do it all the time. 
We reason ourselves out of the responsibilities that we have. And if we can slap a sticker on it that says, approved by God, even better, right? Because then we can look religious at the same time. We can look like we can look righteous. And so we blast someone with our scathing words because God loves honesty, right? Honesty is good. You need to hear this. Or we slander someone else's reputation because isn't it our, you know, we do have a duty for society to uh, let others know what's happened here so that they can protect themselves against so-and-so. And so we choose not to help someone out because God wants us to be wise in the use of our time and resources, right? This is why we have to be very careful with what man-made rules we allow to speak into our lives because they have a strong influence over our lives. These man-made rules can even lead us down a road where we are living in um, we we are living in a life that we are living a life that's fighting against the revealed will of God because of our man-made rules. This is what verse thirteen says. Verse thirteen of chapter seven. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many things like this. So, that, so this isn't the, the, the only example. Thus you nullify the word of God. What a thing to hear. You nullify, you, you render it meaningless and worthless because of what you are doing. And whenever we do this, and I know that, that this is something you know, which I do, uh, which is which is shameful, but when I do this, I'm being like a Pharisee. I'm playing a role. I'm pretending to worship God. All the meanwhile, my heart has been led far from Him by my man-made rule. And the irony is that the that the mental gymnastics that you have to do in order to fool yourself into thinking this is okay, it's it's. It's absolutely incredible. It's exhausting. How much simpler would life be if we made a commitment simply to allow the Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us into living out what's written in the Ten Commandments, right? How much simpler would that life be than, you know, trying to find loopholes and to work out ways, you know, of, um, you know, using the, the word of the Lord against itself, and what I'd like to say to you this morning is that the only remedy for hypocrisy is worship. The only remedy for hypocrisy is worship, is to see God as he truly is. We need to come back to the heart of worship. And it's as we fix our eyes on Christ, as we remind ourselves that it's all about him, that we no longer are hypocrites. Instead, we are worshipers. But the Pharisees had left this way back there in the dust. This was not their reality. They were so intent on right lifestyle, as we read in Mark chapter 7, that they forgot about true worship. They were so intent on not sinning that they had, that they weren't, that they, that they didn't know how to start worshiping. They were so intent on exposing these loopholes of God's law for their, for, for, for their own purposes that they became suspicious of everyone else thinking, you're doing the same, right? This is that life which um, happens when you choose to walk down this road. They were creating their own reality, and it was an ugly and a small and a joyless place where hands had to be ceremonially clean 
while needy parents were left with nothing. They were so fixated on avoiding the edge of the cliff that, that, that they were no longer enjoying the expanse of life that God had made for them. Their world was a small, fenced-in place. Now, now, Jesus has shown the Pharisees that setting human traditions against God's revelation is a foolish thing to do. He has, he's pointed out their hypocrisy and shown them how dangerous and how really ugly this world is where human traditions undermine God's word. Now, now Jesus turns away from, um, from the Pharisees over to the crowd, and using logic, he shows how foolish their reasoning is. Not, uh, he's saying that not ritually cleansing your hands does not lead to internal filth. He teaches them to trade human tradition for God's truth. Verse 14. And again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone. And understand this, nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he said. You don't see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. And I love this. This is probably one of the few references that Jesus talks about having a poo. But that's what this is. In saying this, he declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. And I've raced through that, but if you stop there and just, just spend one minute meditating on each of them, it would be such, such, um, such a convicting thing. All these evils come from inside, and they defile a person. So really what Jesus is saying is simple. He's saying that your digestive system is not connected to your spiritual system. In the same way that a mechanic would say that the transmission system in a car is completely independent from the steering system. And so Jesus is saying that what you eat has nothing to do, what you allow into you has nothing to do with your spirituality at all. So hats, they don't make you holy. Neither do lack of hats make you holy. The act of watching TV on Sunday, it does not make you holy. Watching TV on Sunday, it does not make you holy either. Hats and TV are morally neutral. They just are. And listen to how he presses home his point. He says, hear me, all of you. He says, hear me, listen up, all of you, and understand. Which means what I'm about to say is really important. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. Nothing. There is nothing outside a person that just by letting it into your life makes you filthy inside. Nothing. He could not be more emphatic than this. But here's, here's something which I've realized is that so much of religion is spent trying to clean up what's out there 
or trying to not let what's out there come inside. But that's totally misunderstanding what the problem is. Because the problem is in here. This is the problem. It's the heart. In, in, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 4, it says this. It, it, it says, over all else, you should guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Okay? Everything you do, all the good and the bad. And then Luke chapter 6, verse 45 says, a good person brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. You see, if the sin problem was outside us, then, 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 then we could be our own solution by stopping it, by simply saying, you aren't allowed in. We could lock the door. Sin stays out, righteousness stays in, we're all okay. But because the problem is inside us, we need a solution that's outside of us. We need an external savior to really deal with our internal sin Sin is, 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 sin is, is, you know, it, 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 it's like a mole, right? It's a mole inside um, ceases, right? You know, the, the, that mole is already inside the organization and it has to be rooted out. Sin is truly, uh, it's something inside us. And that's what Romans 7 is all about. We're in a state of real civil war, and we need someone to come out from outside into our lives and to say, okay, peace. We don't need self-help. We need someone else help, and that person is Christ. And so as long as we can fool ourselves that this problem of sin is outside of us, we can say, well, it's not really my fault. It's, my, it's the way I was raised. It's the lack of love which I experienced as a child. It's my culture, etc., etc. But the Bible is explicitly clear that the problem is an internal one. It's one that goes right into the very depth of our being. It's like a water source which is contaminated. And so everything else that comes out is already filthy. And then in verse 21, yeah, the Lord makes this list of horrible things that, that, that originate from inside our hearts. He says theft. He says sexual immorality. He says murder. He says adultery. He says greed. He says malice. He says deceit. He says lewdness. He says, uh, he says envy. He says slander. He says pride. He says foolishness. All of these things come from within. Now, what's interesting is that the members of the Pharisee sect, they'd created a list of 613 rules to explain God's rules. He said, here are the 10. They said, here's the 613. Now, what was the point of the Ten Commandments? It was to show us as humans what God is like. And, but because it's 100%, because we can never keep them, we need someone who who can keep them on our behalf. We need a savior. But the Pharisees created these 613 rules to explain God's 10 rules um, to help them keep these rules. But, and they should have seen that, well, since I'm not able to keep the rules, I probably need someone outside to help me um, or to keep them for me. But instead, what they said is, we'll just try harder. And we'll try harder. And we will explain more. And uh, we will, um, yeah. We will do this over and over again. 
hence these 613 rules. But the Pharisees were missing the point. They didn't need more man-made rules. What they needed to do was trade tradition for truth. They needed a new heart. Because God, he's not just interested in our obedience. He wants us to obey him because we love him. So the love has to be there first. If not, we trade God's truth for human tradition over and over again. You know, you know that the Lord's plan was always that we would have a new heart. This new life would come from a new heart. In fact, we read in the book of Deuteronomy, it says, the, the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart that you may obey it. So our obedience comes from the heart, from a changed heart, by, by, by seeing what Christ's sacrificial love looks like. And then in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 3, we, we read this. It says, You show that you are a letter from Christ, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. That's 2 Corinthians 3, verse 3. So what that's saying is that it's the Holy Spirit living inside us that empowers us and enables us to live a life of obedience. This sin problem is already inside us like an infestation of filthy rats. But what we need is not a bunch of rules so that we can act like those rats aren't there. What we need is a heavenly exterminator who can come in and who can get rid of that infestation once and for all. We need the Holy Spirit to move in. We need a new nature. We need to trade tradition for truth. So wear, wear your hats or not. Watch TV or not. Get circumcised or not. Ritually wash your hands before eating or not doesn't matter. So with our grow groups this week, here are some of the questions because I think that this conversation is going to engender some good healthy discussion which I find exciting. Um, but here are, yeah, here are some of the questions which we will be looking at this week. Uh, the, the first sample is Dan didn't watch TV on Sundays. People in Canada take their hats off to pray. What are some invisible cultural rules that you experienced when you were growing up? How would you explain the value or purpose of that rule to someone from outside your culture? Second sample question, how did the Pharisees end up with 613 rules when there were only 10 commandments? Um, number three, name some invisible rules that we have in church that exist just because it's the way it is. And think about whether we should keep them or maybe get rid of them but you need to give a good reason for scripture for your answer um and the fourth sample question is if a cultural tradition cannot be proved from the bible would that mean it's automatically wrong or not explain why so i'm looking forward to our grow group and if you haven't signed up yet it's out there in the showroom uh in the in the entrance and exit way so I'd like to wrap up by leaving us with a picture, okay? Let's imagine that God has created us to live in a, in a huge plateau. It's literally enormous. He's made this for us to live in, and you literally cannot see from one side over to the other. This represents this life that we have in Christ. So I'd like you to really try to picture it in your mind's eye. What does that huge plateau look like? It's, it's, it's beautiful. It's grace-filled. It's abundant. It's, it's got lots of love. It's rich, and it's green, and it's verdant, and it's absolutely stunning. 
and the sky is blue and the grass is green, the breeze is gentle and it ruffles your hair just a little bit, whether you're wearing a hat or not. This is the life that we were created to live. And, and there on the plateau, there's all sorts of uh, worthy, fun, engaging things that we can do because as followers of Christ, our life should be never boring. Uh, you could spend many lifetimes exploring all the ravines and the forests and the mountains and, and, uh, and the towns and the cities. In fact, it's so big, it's more like a continent. But there is an edge to it. It's huge, but it does not go on forever. There is a point where the plateau stops. After all, it's a plateau. It has to have an end. Now, God's call for us as human beings is to enjoy life there on the plateau to this, this, this life that he's won for us in Christ and his death and resurrection. He says to us, all of this is yours. All of it is yours. And so off scamper Jesus's, uh, off, off scamper Jesus' friends into the freedom of living on the plateau of, of him, living in relationship with him. But there's a group, and they're blind, really, to the wonders of the plateau. Because all they can see is the edge. And even though there's literally no need to wander anywhere near the edge at all, this group cannot help but stare at it. They fixate on, on it. It's all that they can see. And so they go near to the edge, and they see these warning signs placed Near the, edge of the near the edge of the precipice, it says, one sign says, no gods except God. One sign says, don't worship idols. One, one sign says, don't use the name of God thoughtlessly. One says, keep the Sabbath day holy. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder anyone. Do not commit adultery or steal. No telling lies about your neighbors. Don't want anything that, that your neighbor has that you don't have. There are these warning signs all around the edge. These signs um, act as a warning so that people stay away from the edge of the precipice. And, and so most people, they can say, okay, fine, I'll be careful, now let's go and have fun. But what, these, but what, this, but what this group um, aren't able to do is that. Instead, what they do is they see the edge and suddenly life becomes all about how do I keep away from the edge? How do I avoid it instead of enjoying all that God has created for them? And they feel that maybe God's signs are a little bit vague. They're not really clear enough. They start wondering, or wondering, well, how do you know if you've used the name of the Lord in the wrong way or not? How do you really know? How do you know if you've stolen or not? How can you be sure? And so they make a fence all away round the edge of the continent, you know, just a little bit in, in. And the purpose of this fence is to keep people away from the edge. And there along the fence, they, they actually post more rules uh, that helpfully explain all of the 10 rules which are actually around the edge. But then they think, well, it's still not clear enough. There's still too great a risk that someone might climb this fence and fall over the edge without even realizing. And so they make a second fence that goes all the way around, right inside that, that, that first fence. And then they post even more rules that show people how to live out those extra rules that are there to explain how to live out those rules on the outside. And this goes on and on. Fences go up. 
um, and more rules and more rules and more rules. And, and because of these fences, the usable land that, 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 that these folks are able to enjoy actually gets smaller and smaller and smaller as they retreat into the center of the plateau. Eventually, you have the group of the Pharisees, this group, a sat right smack in the middle of the plateau in a space the size of a city block. They had all of the continent to use, but they're sat there in the space of the size of a city block, and they say to each other, well, at least no one's going to fall off the edge. Meanwhile, God's heart breaks because life in him was never about just avoiding falling off the edge. Psalm 18 verse 19 says this, he brought me into a spacious place. He rescued me. Why? Because he delighted in me. Life in Jesus is supposed to be about enjoying the space and the size of the gracious life that he's created for us. And when we do stray too near the edge, well, we, you know, we, we, we do have the Ten Commandments that can lead us back into the heart of God. They remind us of what true freedom looks like, loving God and loving each other. And so we turn around in repentance and we walk back to God, reminding ourselves of how good he is. But the Pharisees want to limit that spacious place because they say spacious places are really dangerous. Small, compact, tight spaces, well, they're manageable. They are safe. A person with a self-righteous, pharisaical spirit has spiritual, spiritual agoraphobia. They cannot handle the freedom that God calls us to. It's too big and it's too scary, so it's better to stay indoors. A Pharisee wants to childproof everything, to get rid of every sharp corner and every risk. But you know what happens to, some, to a child who's continually childproofed? Well, they never get to experience the risk of life. Life lived in a bubble. It's a pseudo-life in which the um, riotous colors of, of joy and tragedy are, re are replaced with beige, never-ending beige. And for a child that only ever encounters uh, stair gates, the stairs will always be a thing of nervousness. You know, maybe I'm not able to do it. So for maturity to happen, we, have, we, we really have to grow. We have to expand. We have to strike off in a new, new direction. And when we go too far, when we start straying into sin or into unhealthy life patterns, trust that the Father heart of God will really call us back to himself. This is the story of the prodigal son, that the son that left only realized how good his father was when he was there near 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 to the edge now what i'm not doing is i'm not saying we should sin i'm not saying that we should live a live and let live lifestyle i you know i'm not saying let's throw all caution to the wind and just live how we feel no we need rules and we have them we have the ten commandments but we've proven that we aren't able to keep them, not one of them. And Jesus says, if you break one of them, then you're guilty of, of, of them all. So we do have to be kept from the edge. Of course we do. But the way to do that is not to create a never-ending list of fences and fine print rules. The way to do that is to look back at the plateau and to realize how, how, how good 
our God is and to fall in love with his beauty and his glory over and over again. We need to realize that, 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 that these ten rules show us God's heart and that heart is glorious and good and fearsome and just and beautiful and righteous. We have to live we have to live according to the Spirit because it's only by the, we live, as we live by the Spirit that we do not gratify the desires of the sinful flesh. Let me close by saying this. Our fundamental problem is not that we break the rules too much. Our fundamental problem is that we don't love the Lord sufficiently. The, and so the solution isn't more rules. What the solution is, is to base every decision that we make on this question, how can I bring glory to God? 1 Corinthians 10.31 says this, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. It's that simple. If you live according to that, to that maxim and that rule with the Holy Spirit living inside of you, if you read his word, if you keep the lines of communication open with him through prayer, if you keep a short account with him, if you keep worshipping with your fellow brothers and sisters, then you will never, ever make the mistake of trading tradition, trading truth for tradition. If you do everything for God's glory, then the edge is never an issue.